Lucifer means Lightbringer presents the mythical astronomy of ice and fire. The Sacred Order of Green Zombies, Part 5. The Great Old Ones. Featuring Silas Thomas, San Rixian, and Ideas of Ice and Fire. Hello. Hello, everyone. We got a little spooky intro music for you because it's going to be an especially spooky podcast today. We're delving into some of the darkest corners of A Song of Ice and Fire source mythology. And that, of course, is the works of H.P. Lovecraft with a little occult European folklore sprinkled in. So it's going to be a dark and twisted road that we will walk today. And with me to walk this road, as you heard, are... Two of my dear friends. One is a, a cohabitor of the great state of California. My hey. good friend Silas Toms from the God of Terror blog. Say hello, Silas Toms. Hey, all. Thanks for coming. I heard a rumor it was your birthday yesterday, my friend. Yep, and we celebrated hard, so I may be a little slow today. We'll, just, we'll give you a few minutes for the coffee to kick in, and then we're going um, to expect, you know... Uh, <laughs> In any case, (laughs) that's right. Well, yeah, I guess. um, Well, we won't we won't speak of age specific ages, but we celebrate with you. And thanks for sharing your post birthday glow with us. We appreciate that. It's my pleasure. And uh, also with me. I'm sorry. What was that? I said thanks for having me. There you go. You got to speak up, or else I'll just talk over you. (laughs) All right. Good enough. Okay. And then uh, joining me also is, of course, who you heard on the intro, Quinn from Ideas of Ice and Fire. I, I want to know who that like annoying, overdramatic voice was on the intro. That wasn't me. That was you. Oh, oh okay. you sent me a normal take, and I was like, "No, <laughs> that's not going to do." Give me something way more dramatic, and so that's yeah. what we got. Well, it's great to be back on here. I'm ready to get into this stuff. It could go a million different directions. Well, the beginning part, but not your part because it's scripted. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I do have a script today, guys. Just to give you an idea of the format. I do have a script. Uh, I've got a few places where I'm going to stop the script and open it for discussion with these guys so we can get a little more background on some of the Lovecraftian ideas. Uh, But before we even start, I thought it would be appropriate to actually have a little bit of um, open discussion about the intersection of Lovecraft and A Song of Ice and Fire. There's nobody better uh, to tell you about that than these two guys here. And in in particular, Silas, I want to start with you. you. You do have a blog called The Gods of Terror, and the basic premise of it is that... Uh, Martin is sort of drawing on the general sense of the idea of hidden gods and sleeping gods when he's creating his own mythos. And uh, it's a really fascinating sort of behind-the-scenes idea, but it definitely fits the vibe of what's going on. So give us a few minutes on uh, on just what that's all about. Well, thanks again. Yeah, so um, <clears throat> when I first read the books after the second season, you know, um, what was really fun for me was just realizing how deep the world goes, no matter how far you dig. And like, uh, unlike most fantasy stories where you just kind of see the ideas that create the universe sort of fall apart because it's just too hard to create such a deep world. 
So I got really excited by that, and, and I kept seeing on Reddit, especially like mentions of Lovecraft, which I thought was like needlework or something at first. <laughs> but uh, I finally read up and realized that you know he was this amazing author um, who created a lot of the you know horror uh, basis or ideas that really influence modern horror movies and uh, also fantasy. And I read up on how um, George was a big time, you know, Lovecraft and Conan fan when he was a teenager and a young boy. Um, Conan being, a, you know, a creation of one of his best friends. So um, the whole world uh, being so related and sort of funneled into just like the underlying tapestry of a Game of Thrones and Ice and Fire that I had to read up more on it. So um, one of the really fun things was looking at, you know, comparing the gods uh, that obviously are a you know, big part of Lovecraft and seeing how at least, you know, some explicitly and some less so they've been adapted into the gods uh, of the world of ice and fire. So that got me really excited and I started blogging about it and um, I've gone in, you know, many different directions with it. And I've read a lot of fun and a lot of pulpy 60s uh, camp kind of uh, fantasy, you know, like Thongor, if you've ever read Thongor, written by Lynn Carter, who was George's first editor or one of his first editors and a good friend of his and a uh, you know committed Lovecraft devotee who also wrote a lot of later Conan stories. So uh, I really got into just trying to spot, much like you with the uh, you know mythological astronomy, trying to spot where these ideas are used. Sometimes, you know, like I said, way in the background and sometimes like right up front, like the Bloodstone Emperor, which we'll get into more, I'm sure. Sorry, I'm trying to I'm trying to get uh, Sandry in on the call here behind the scenes. I got a little technical issues going on. Quinn, you want to uh, respond to uh, the basic uh, thoughts outlined here? Yeah, I like a lot of what he said. I, I, I dabble with the Lovecraft stuff. Basically, it came out of reading A Song of Ice and Fire and then reading, I got this big Lovecraft book that had a bunch of his stories in it. I think it was maybe all of them. And just just noticing just like certain like names or places being similar. And then just diving deeper and seeing how all these things like the deep ones are pulled directly from Lovecraft and a lot of different um, a lot of different things, and I just, it, I, I tend, I tend, when I make, I've made a few videos pointing some of these things out, but I tend to be a little bit vaguer. I tend to not, like, point to, like, an exact figure and be like, this is definitely this person. I say, like, oh, this could maybe relate to something to do with uh, this god, and some of its characteristics could be applied to this certain character or this place. Um, like, for instance, like, the idea of, like, an abandoned place, like, shy is, like, this kind of, most of a shy has to be kind of abandoned, right? Because there's not that many people there and it's super large. So I, I kind of think how it's like next to the mountains and I think about at the Mountains of Madness where these guys, they go over there and they discover uh, this kind of abandoned city and then these things wake up and they unleash this like terror and he's like, don't go back there. But yeah, I, I kind of think about that. Um, so it just, that kind of stuff just gets me excited because I know that um, it... One of the things that Lovecraft is really good at is like hinting at like these hidden terrors, like these awful things that um, people aren't really supposed to know about or see. Like, for instance, in that story at the Mountains of Madness, 
when they're escaping, one of the guys looks back and he goes like insane because that's like a thing that Lovecraft does. Like you look at this horrible thing and you go insane. But yeah, because like mankind, you're you're not supposed to know about it. It's so terrible that you're not supposed to know about it. And I just like how George R. Martin incorporates those kind of ideas into the story. And recently, because you mentioned like pop culture and like modern horror movies, the movie Bird Box <laughs> did a Lovecraft thing. And they, they even literally have a scene where he's like drawing pictures of like Lovecraftian monsters in that movie. I don't know if you've seen that movie. It was like, they see this thing and they kill themselves. It was kind of dumb, but (laughs) yeah, it was definitely like kind of playing off that Lovecraft thing. Yeah. Yeah. Aziz has talked about this in, uh, I think it's actually a patron only episode that he did on the prologue, but the prologue where Garrett sort of goes insane after seeing the others and, oh, hello, Sanry. Mm. Yes. Hello. <laughs> um, so I, I'm in the shame cube, everyone. Uh, this is this was my fault. Uh, <laughs> the cube of shame. Yeah, I'm. I need to go get a box and put it over my head or something. It's. Uh, <laughs> thank you for uh, forgiving me and joining the stream, Sanry. What can I say? Oh, I'm Hello? muted. Sorry. <laughs> I, thought, I, th- I thought you were just coming on and instantly giving me this silent Holy goodness! <laughs> You've already gotten started. Oh, Look at this. I What's have... going on here? Drawn you goat boys and <laughs> as all centaurs have. And yeah, these are just warm ups. They always start with a butt. So how did the how why is there a butt? Why I, they're why always are it's two moons. Okay, that's true. <laughs> you got a um super chat from Marvin Martin. Uh there has been a couple super chats. Um Melanie Lot 7 sent in one earlier. And did you say... Uh, Marvin Martin. Was that like way earlier? Yeah. Way okay. Early. Well, I can't see it. But thank you, Marvin Martin. Thank you, Mr. Marvin Martin. I very much appreciate that. Uh, and by the way, we're getting ready to start fundraising for the cons. We're going to try to go to two cons this year. So going to be doing... I'm going to be bugging you about that. But not today. Today we're here to talk about Lovecraft and Cthulhu and... Not Cthulhu, but actually we're going to be talking more about story called Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's that's the one where there's, um, I found a lot of A Song of Ice and Fire correlations, but getting back to what I was saying a minute ago, uh, the prologue of A Game of Thrones is probably the first place you see a Lovecraftian idea. And it's not actually not even in the prologue, but more so in the next chapter after um, Ned executes Garrett because Garrett is basically driven insane by his confrontation with the others and possibly by seeing Waymar rise from the dead. And his mortal mind just reels in the face of this incomprehensible evil and power. And that is like, you know, one of the major themes, if not the theme of Lovecraft works, is it not Silas? Yeah. Yeah. Especially uh, the basic idea is that there's these beings that aren't really gods. They're like, just beings that are so vast and incomprehensible and old that you can't really comprehend it if you're one of the tiny little folk who live on planets like we do. And they travel between the planets, somehow always coming to Earth, which is like, you know, kind of funny. (laughs) But, you know, I guess it's an important spot. And uh, if you happen to just look in the wrong place or look the wrong way, um, when one of these gods pops out, your mind is just blown, you know, it's so incomprehensibly vast and old and freakish 
that you, you your puny human brain just can't handle it and uh that's a that's like the most continuing theme that he uh he employs that the cosmos are so vast and scary that if we stop to even think about it we get scared and if we catch a glimpse we would go insane so what's interesting that uh, about that to me is that it's kind of like the flip side of the idea of shamanic madness, which you see in Odin and Norse mythology, where the idea is like the shaman, in order to communicate with the other side, has to be sort of half mad. And frequently, uh, the breakthrough for a young shaman comes when he is sick uh, or has a near-death experience. Um, you know, this this kind of thing can open the third eye. And Martin plays with that idea where people are placed, you know, in darkness or under stress. And this, this triggers, you know, spiritual activity and opening of the third eye. So that's kind of interesting. So Lovecraft is basically talking about like what happens when you try to walk that road of half madness and you fall over the edge, you know, when you don't make it. That's like what Lovecraft is almost fascinated with. And you, if one thinks of Euron, like Euron is attempting to comprehend these things and you can tell he's, he's at least half mad, um, but he's, he's right now holding it together. Uh, he doesn't seem to be about to implode. Um, so one wonders where Martin is going with that. What do you guys think? What, where, where is Euron going? Is he going to like drive himself insane or someone <laughs> have to kill him? You want to go, Quinn? Uh, I, so, uh, well, you can go ahead if you want. I've talked right. about Euron so much. Yeah, well, um, Euron figures deep into uh, a lot of my essays, especially on uh, Narlethotep, the crawling chaos. Um, some part of me wants to believe that he's been like, you know, become an avatar of Narlethotep or Narlothotep or however you might pronounce it. Don't worry about pronouncing these things. Uh, supposedly, we'll never be able to pronounce it correctly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Narlethotep is kind of, He's used by Stephen King by a lot of people as kind of like um, the guy who wants to, the god or whatever, who actually communicates with humans more than any others, the messenger of the god. And he comes down always to uh, kind of not kill necessarily directly, but to help humanity kill itself, to help humanity kind of go insane. And so if there's a character like Euron, who's already pretty intense and pretty insane, and he might um, be the, you know, being that pushes us into the long night somehow uh, with whatever uh, mechanism that's going to be revealed. Uh, Narlethotep is the kind of being that would help him along the way. So, Silas, I've got people asking where we can find your essays. And the easy way to do it is just search Gods of Terror. That will pull it right up. Uh, the link is also in the description of this video. And I will go ahead and just drop it back in once again. But all you have to do is search Gods of Terror, and it will come right up. <laughs> Thank you for that. Yeah, I've just, you know, there may be a little long, some of them. <laughs> but there's so much material there correlating back and forth between how George grew up reading it, how he learned to love it, that I, uh, I, I can't help but just carry on. <laughs> now, your Tumblr is your main page, right? Yeah, yeah, and I know Tumblr has like been a bad boy the last few months, but uh, <laughs> I, I just don't, I don't want to transfer it over. I'm a lazy guy. <laughs> well, I will say that WordPress sites tend to be easier to navigate when you're looking for old essays. That's my one frustration with Tumblr is when you look for old essays, it's kind of hard. But yeah, the archives um, 
is the easiest way to do that, but it's still a pain. I agree. All right. Uh, so what we're going to get into today is the concept of the the great old ones in particular. So can you, Quinn, tell us about the great old ones sort of as a classification and what kinds of beings are they? What do they do? Okay. Well, the great old ones refers to like the the quote-unquote gods that ruled over the earth like way, way, way before mankind ever got there. And like generally, like in modern times, I guess, they're like imprisoned in, in another dimension or like asleep or like uh, they're like away. They're not present. But like they do still have effect on, I guess, like the people in the real world. Like I guess in uh, the sh- in the short story, The Call of Cthulhu, for instance, at one point he's like sending dreams out to people and there's cults that worship them and stuff like that. Um, so you can kind of communicate with them, too. In uh, the story, The Dumb Witch Horror, actually, uh, the the great old one, God, which one is it? I forget. I, th- I think it's Yogg-Sothoth. And he, has, he, actually, he actually has physical children. Like, they're like these kind of like half-human, half-monstrous uh, things. So, yeah, they're kind of like they're kind of like these super dimensional, super, I guess, intelligent. So far beyond like your understanding and like that just merely seeing them will drive you crazy. And like you said, Stephen King does that. He did it in It a lot. He does it in uh, The Dark Tower. George R. R. Martin might have done that with like Patchface and like you said, the character in the prologue. Um, so, yeah, the great that's what the great old ones are. And they they tend to communicate to people through like psychic invasions, dreams, stuff like that, right? Yeah, dreams. Like like you mentioned, the dream quest of Kadath. That's one. Like literally, Nyarlathotep shows up at the end of that one. And what's interesting about that one is, uh, it's it's not typical of a Lovecraft story because the the protagonist like kind of gets away. He doesn't like he doesn't fall victim to the the great old one, and they they usually always have the upper hand. So that's that that just shows you they're not actually gods in the traditional sense of like like d- divine gods. They're just beings that are like beyond us, like way way beyond. Well, we're gonna we're gonna talk about uh, the Isle of Lang in the Song of Ice and Fire, but of course, you guys probably remember that the old ones live in the jungle there, in the ruins under the jungle, and it's said that they occasionally whisper to the god Empress and advise her to you know kill all the foreigners on the island. And that's a yeah. very old one's concept, the idea that these gods are whispering into people's ears and telling them to do horrible things. So that's an important component of what's going on here. And it also, you know, makes you think of the way that Quave whispers to Danny through the glass candles and Blood Raven whispering to Bran through dreams. Um, so, you know, if Martin famously likes to deconstruct the idea of gods by giving you an actual explanation for it. And this is something he's done in a lot of his sci-fi short stories, where it turns out God is actually, well, it's it's the Grishka. It's some weird hive mind, gelatin, ooze, fungus type thing. Or, you know, yeah. the, the gods are actually the hive mind of the dead green seers, you know, the old gods in the weirwood. So yeah. these are basically Lovecraftian ideas. Um, and so what's cool to realize is that the Lovecraft influences aren't just like the the things like the deep ones, you know, the idea of fish people and names like Kadath and stuff, uh, but the the broader concepts, um, some of the sense of terror and wonder, you know, that informs some of the plots like Bran and Euron are heavily touched by Lovecraftian sort of overall vibe and feel. So a couple of super chats just so. I'm going to begin the script here, but like I said, there's going to be several sections where I'm going to stop 
We're going to sort of chat about what's going on. So it'll be weaving in and out of scripted air, uh, in, uh, material today. I'll also tell you that uh, what started as quote unquote the script for this episode has become two scripts. It's definitely two episodes worth of material. Um, so we're going to not sure exactly where we're going to stop today. I've got a couple different stopping points in mind, depending on sort of what time it is and how fast we're going. Um, and I'm not sure when we're going to do part two, because next Sunday is Super Bowl Sunday. We'll, we'll figure that out. But like I said, there's a lot of Old Ones material. Um, it just sort of opened up. You know, I dove into it and it kept going and going. And so uh, I've learned not to try to cram too much script into the live presentations, because then it just sort of gets rushed. So We've got a good amount of material. It's very exciting. In fact, I think this one is going to be one of the most exciting episodes we've done in a while. I've been working on it for like two years. And at first I thought it was tinfoil. And the more I dug into it, uh, the more solidified it becomes. So now I'm not even sure what it is, but uh, it's, it's freaky. So here we go. The Great Old Ones, guys. The Great Old Ones. Sacred Order of Green Zombies, Part 5. I often tell people one of the most amazing things about A Song of Ice and Fire is George's ability to incorporate elements and ideas of so many different influences to create his own tapestry of symbol, archetype, and myth. As we all know, George studied Norse myth in college and draws from it quite heavily. And George also draws from J.R.R. Tolkien, who in turn drew upon Norse myth to create his fantasy world. But George is also drawing from many other mythologies and religions, as well as from selected bits of world history like the War of the Roses, and even things like Marvel Comics, or Hanna-Barbera's Thundar, as you guys know, which is an old Saturday morning cartoon that began each week with a runaway planet-slash-red comet type thing, cracking the moon, causing disasters on Earth, followed by a hero, Thundar, who fights with a glowing white sun sword. It seems to me that George pulls from absolutely any idea or story which has influenced him along the journey of his life, be it myth, history, or comic, and he'll even throw in references to obscure things like Oscar Wilde's stories or Grateful Dead lyrics or the Giants-Patriots Super Bowl game from a few years back. Speaking of football, Woon Woon. That's, we'll talk about Woon Woon in a minute. All of these and more are synthesized together into the harmonious maelstrom of stories and characters that make up a song of ice and fire. Now, this might sound complicated and difficult, but just remember, the result is the highly readable series that we know and love. Song of Ice and Fire never becomes weird or clunky because of these kinds of references to external ideas. I mean, you probably flew right by most of them on your first read, as I did. Most of these influences show up in the symbolism, in the world building, and in the backgrounds of the characters. The things that make up the set and setting for the players to play on. The players themselves are always on center stage, the heart in conflict. But the richness of the set and the script owe a lot to Martin's ability to creatively synthesize all the great things which have inspired him. By doing so, he's carrying the torch of his forerunners and inspiring a new generation, people like you and me, to expand our knowledge of literature, myth, history, and, I guess, Marvel Comics. It's almost like a time capsule mode of storytelling. I picture it working like this. At some point early on, Martin decides to include flaming swords in his story, since they're such a good staple fantasy element. So instead of trying to reinvent the wheel, he's going to draw upon his favorite flaming swords from, well, everywhere. So we get nods to Sigurd's Graham from Norse myth, King Arthur's Excalibur, Elric of Melnibony's Stormbringer, the magic swords of Tad Williams's Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn, Aragorn's Narsil, and the meteor swords Anguirel and Anglicel from Tolkien's Silmarillion. 
And let's not forget Darth Vader's red lightsaber, or Thundar's sun sword, or that flaming sword held in the hands of the angel guarding the entrance to the Garden of Eden. Lightbringer is not a one-for-one adaptation of any of these swords, but rather a descendant or a cousin of them all. Today we're going to talk about the Old Ones, both Martin's version of the Old Ones and the more famous Old Ones from the works of H.P. Lovecraft. You might think that since H.P. Lovecraft is the only one to write about the Old Ones, Martin must be adapting his Old Ones pretty much straight from Lovecraft. But au contraire, my friends. It turns out that Lovecraft isn't the only one to write about the Old Ones, and the other folks who have written about them lived centuries and centuries and even millennia ago. What do I mean? Well, as George R. R. Martin likes to say, keep reading or keep listening as it may be. The Old Ones. This section is brought to you by our newest dragon patron, Yggdragaris, the Stormworm, the Dragon of the Lock, whose scales are sea green and whose horns, wing membranes, and spinal crest are burnt orange. It is said that Yggdragaris, a descendant of Nidhogg, is foretold to encircle the well of Mimir until the days when the long winter comes again. In any case, that's Yggdragaris, and that's obviously playing on Yggdrasil, but it's also playing off of the famous dragon of Celtic mythology, Ydreg Ghosh, and it's Y space D-D-R-A-I-G G-O-C-H, the red dragon. And this is one of the most famous dragons in Celtic mythology. So I just sort of smushed that together and got Ig Dragaris. So there you go. That was a long explanation. <laughs> <laughs> so the old ones. So you're cruising along. You're reading through the world of ice and fire and you've worked your way all the way to the Essos material in the back of the book. And you come across this really weird place called the Holy Isle of Lang in the Jade Sea. It's a large, verdant island which is home to 10,000 tigers and 10 million monkeys, according to Lomas Longstrider. That sounds cool. And slightly weirder are the spotted humpback apes said to be almost as clever as men, and the hooded apes as large as giants. Okay, this place sounds exotic, you think to yourself, and it seems like evolution is happening here. And then things start to get truly creepy in only the second paragraph. Take it away, Quinn. Ling's history goes back almost as far as that of Yiti itself, but little and less is known of west of the Jade Straits. There are queer ruins in the depths of the island's jungle, massive buildings long fallen and so overgrown that rubble remains above the surface. But underground, we are told endless labyrinths of tunnels lead to vast chambers and carved steps descend hundreds of feet into the earth. No man can say who might have built these cities or when. They remain perhaps the only remnant of some vanished people. All right. If you're like me, or Quinn and Silas and Mallory, that's the kind of thing that you get excited for. Am I right? Underground cities, vanished people. Tell us more, right? Yeah. Well, the narrative returns Ooh. to conventional. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's, that's the good shit, right? <laughs> Is that yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, Martin keeps the the hardcore fantasy very much um you know under under wraps. He only gives us little glimpses of it, but this is what you call a glimpse. So Yeah. 
The narrative returns to conventional history about how Lang was colonized by E.T. and how it has two types of people, the very tall native Langi and the very short Yitish. But your eyes can't help but roam down to the sidebar on the next page, where it tells us more about those ruins in the jungle. And it is here that we encounter the Old Ones. Legends persist that the Old Ones still live beneath the jungle of Ling. So many of the warriors that Jarhar sent down below the ruins returned mad or not at all, that the god emperor finally decreed the vast underground city's ruins should be sealed up and forgotten. Even today it is forbidden to enter such places, under penalty of torture and death. Hot damn, now that is really some good shit. Underground cities from which people either come back insane or not at all. It's very mysterious, and there's one other reference to the Old Ones in the Lang section a bit further on. It was mariners from the Golden Empire who opened Ling to trade. Yet even then the island remained a perilous place for outsiders, for the Empress of Ling was known to have congress with the Old Ones, gods who lived deep below the ruined subterranean cities, and from time to time the Old Ones told her to put all the strangers on the island to death. This is known to have happened at least four times in the island's history, if Kalakovatar's Jade Compendium can be believed. Okay, so it's even creepier now. The god Empress of Lang has Congress with the Old Ones, and every once in a while, they just sort of tell her to execute all the foreigners. All right, well, that's lovely. And also, vote Kiara for Congress. Death to all the foreigners. Uh, 2020. <laughs> Sketchy, right? Relevant. Yeah. I mean, a little too much a, on the nose there. <laughs> you got to be a hardline anti-immigration person to uh, run for Congress in Lang, I think. So <laughs> so anyone with an even, even a passing familiarity with the works of H.P. Lovecraft will probably recognize the phrase, the old ones. The old ones are, quoting from the Lovecraft fandom wiki, a group of unique, malignant beings of great power. They reside in various locations on Earth and once presided over the planet as gods and rulers. And of course, we expanded on that in the intro a little bit. Um, they are separate from the other gods and monsters, such as the Deep Ones, who also appear in A Song of Ice and Fire, or the Chthonians, or beings like Yog sothoth Azazoth, and Nyarthlorotep, or something, whatever his name is. <laughs> Although I should even say that that's a little bit blurry. Sometimes those last three are counted as part of the Great Old Ones, so... Um, there's a little bit of, yeah. you know, about like the, the Durlaf controversy, if you will. Uh, no. Can you tell us about it, uh, in brief? Yeah. So, uh, one of his best friends, uh, well, maybe let's just say they were best friends. This guy, August Durlaf, after, uh, Lovecraft died at age like 38, which is pretty young. (laughs) All of a sudden, uh, there was nobody to manage all the material that he'd created. So Durlaf created Arkham House to publish it and started putting it out throughout the 40s and 50s and adding new stories. And Durlath was like more of a Christian than sort of the you know cosmic uh, unknown beliefs that uh, Lovecraft had. So he tried to organize things to make sense in a more theological way. And there's some controversy around like, you know, who's included in the quote unquote great old ones versus the outer gods versus the gods of Earth, uh, because it was never as explicit from Lovecraft's own writing. So that's the the controversy in brief. Yeah, I know about this. George R. R. Martin has actually said that he hates Durlap. Well, I don't know if he used the word hate, 
but he doesn't like it because he feels like it takes away a lot of the mystery, like some of the later stuff. But yeah, and I agree. And that's very that's a very Martin thing to say about it. And of course, I mean, who can classify beings that are beyond the comprehension of mortal man, right? I guess isn't that the whole point? So exactly, yeah, yeah. It's kind of <clears throat> presumptuous, isn't it? Yeah. So in any case, the point is when you see the old ones in Lang, uh, in this, in the world of ice and fire, you know this sets off the red flags. If if you've ever read a, you know any Lovecraft, you're like, okay, wait a minute, the old ones. So the old ones, like we were saying, they're beyond comprehension. And in particular, they use a lot of mind control and psychic warfare. And they're generally bad news for mortals. Those are the things that we need to know. So generally speaking, there are a handful of very clear references to H.P. Lovecraft in Far Eastern Esso, such as Kadath, a city in the Grey Waste beyond the Five Forts, or Carcosa, which is similarly beyond the realms of mortal men on the edge of the map. Lang itself is a name drawn from Lovecraftian lore, where it takes the form of either a plateau that exists only in the dream world, or possibly, because it varies a bit from story to story, as an ancient city in Antarctica built by, who else? The Old Ones. Then there's Ib, Sarnath, the Cult of Starry Wisdom, all of which are from Lovecraft, as well as basically everything about a shy and that black beadier worshipped by the Bloodstone Emperor who founded the A Song of Ice and Fire version of the Church of Starry Wisdom, which is from Lovecraft, since magically toxic meteors that poison people and the land is a reoccurring element in a few Lovecraft stories, such as The Color from Outer Space, which aren't they making a movie out of that, guys? Quinn? You look y- yes, yes, I just heard about this, but I don't know much about it, but I just heard about it. I don't know how they're going to do it, but we'll see. <laughs> So I haven't read that one, but what I know about it is that there's a meteor that falls that essentially begins killing the land and turning it to gray ash, and it drives people crazy or something like that, right? Yeah, it just mutates and destroys everything. The people go mad slowly and eventually die. So it's just like it just kills everything. <laughs> and I was... I was <laughs> well, so you love Kraft, par for the course. He's a very cheerful guy. But uh, I was already keying into the idea that perhaps... Um, Ashai was all poisoned and and weird because of a meteor that fell, uh, as opposed to the city being built out of oily black stone. It makes a lot more sense to me that a city that large was built out of regular stone, but there's a poison meteorite sort of poisoning the land, killing everything. Only ghost grass can grow. And then somebody told me about the color out of space, and I you know read the wiki on it, and I was like, hey, wait a minute, that's probably where he got that idea. I mean, that sounds exactly like Ashai. So that's a good catch. And that could explain why, you know, nobody can really go there and live very long because it's plain old toxic. You have to be a shadow binder or something to even withstand the magical power of that meteor that's laying in Stigai in, uh, in the very nice uh, meteor temple that they have there. So in any case, that's my that's my I definitely see that. But yeah. I like that idea a lot, obviously. (laughs) So if you've recognized any of these nods to Lovecraft as you read the Eastern sections, uh, you probably came away with the idea that just as Martin draws from Tolkien and the same Norse myth that Tolkien drew from to create most of the Northern culture and weirwood magic, he's using a lot of Lovecraft ideas to create Eastern Essos. You'd be right. And I think Martin is actually making something of a statement about Lovecraftian lore here. So Tolkien is credited with creating basically the template for modern fantasy fiction, right? Eventually, fantasy authors essentially began using and repurposing his orcs and elves and hobbits in their own fiction. Um, Maybe changing the name sometimes, but essentially Tolkien made the template. And 
I think that what's going on here is that by George having his own version of deep ones and old ones, Martin is telling us that in his mind, Lovecraft's monsters have entered that universal fantasy lexicon, if you will, along with the orcs and the hobbits, and that other authors should basically feel free to adapt them to their own stories. What do you think about that, Silas? Yeah, I think that's one of his um, most brilliant points is that uh, you should have your own view, your own take on uh, these influences. So he combines them in such a way that they add to the story and he's able to, you know, maneuver the myths to fit his stories and to uh, to make them more uh, bold and more rich, I think. Uh, but he's not afraid to like, take you know a well-known myth and work it into the way he sees it or the way he feels it should be so i really like that it's it's not just taking templates and and running with it he's uh he's really actively molding the myths himself and a lot of times i feel like he's having a conversation with those authors that came before too that's a good way to put it yeah and he even talks about that with tolkien you know sort of like taking what he likes and adding his own commentary on it so it's very thoughtful um, and we've even found that uh, with with some of the universal tropes that he plays with. It's very much like he's like, yeah, we'll do that, but we'll, you know, it should be this way, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, and a clash of kings is basically Tyrion uh, dealing with Aragorn's tax policy, if you will. <laughs> so, you know, and that's one of my favorite uh, <clears throat> books is Tyrion's a Clash of Kings arc, but. Agreed. So for some reason, a lot of people make the mistake of recognizing these Lovecraftian influences in some of these elements of A Song of Ice and Fire and concluding that they are just nods to Lovecraft, as if that precludes them from being relevant to the story. That is silly, because George gives nods to all kinds of stuff, constantly. And it never means that that's all it is. One of the famous football references comes in the middle of John's death scene with Woon Woon the Giant standing in for Phil Simms a Giants, New York Giants quarterback who wore the number 11, which is 1-1. Woon Woon, 1-1. That's it. Uh, Sir Patrick, the, the person that Woon Woon kills, wears a blue star on silver uh, and white, or actually many blue stars on silver and white. That's his sigil, uh, which is basically the, the symbol of the Dallas Cowboys, the hated rivals of the Giants. Uh, but those blue stars also helps Sir Patrick to symbolize the others in a different scene. And of course, John's death scene itself is kind of important. So while some of these Lovecraft nods don't really mean much, like the cities in the Grey Waste, the concept of the old ones is not inconsequential, but rather something more. The tales of people going mad from exploring the ruins of the old ones in the jungles of Lang is very, very consistent with Lovecraft, as we mentioned where the human mind struggled to maintain sanity in the face of forces far greater than itself is a major theme of his work, perhaps the major theme. People are constantly going insane in Lovecraft stories, to put it simply, and it's always due to mankind trying to comprehend something which is just too terrifying for the human mind, as we were talking about. In the Lovecraft universe, Lang is an abandoned city built by the Old Ones, or it's a plateau with multiple abandoned cities, as I mentioned. And in a Song of Ice and Fire universe... It's an island with abandoned cities built by the Old Ones, which is pretty much the same thing. The Old Ones whispering in the ear of the Empress and commanding her to commit mass murder is very Lovecraftian and consistent with the modus operandi of the Lovecraftian Old Ones, who use psychic invasion and suggestion as their preferred tool. But there's something else going on with Lang 
that is very mysterious that at first doesn't appear to really have anything to do with Lovecraft, but which will lead us back to a different sort of old one. It has to do with those native Lengi people. On the southern third of Ling dwelled the descendants of those displaced by the invaders from the Golden Empire. The native Lingi are perhaps the tallest of all the known races of mankind, with many men among them reaching seven feet in height, and some as tall as eight. Long-legged and slender, with flesh the color of oiled teak, they have large golden eyes, and can supposedly see farther and better than other men, especially at night. Though formidably tall, the women of the Lingi are famously lithe and lovely of surpassing beauty. You guys probably remember this image from the World Book. There is the very tall Lengi woman and the shorter Yutish man. And uh, yeah, it's quite the pairing. One of those odd couples you see. But hey, it's true love, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let me go back here. So large golden eyes that can see better in the dark. Hello. That can only remind us of one thing. The children of the forest. That was not Arya's voice, nor any child's. It was a woman's voice, high and sweet, with a strange music in it, like none he had ever heard, and a sadness that he thought might break his heart. Bran squinted to see her better. It was a girl, but smaller than Arya. Her skin dappled like a doe's beneath a cloak of leaves. Her eyes were queer, large and liquid, gold and green, slid it like a cat's eyes. No one has eyes like that. Her hair was a tangle of brown and red and gold, autumn colors with vines and twigs and withered flowers woven through it. That was from A Dance with Dragons, and elsewhere it says that the children have nut-brown skin. You may not have a clear image in your mind of teak, the word used to describe the skin tone of the langi, but it's basically a golden-hued, medium-brown. And so when you say oiled teak, that suggests a shade darker than medium. So you picture a, you know, sort of a South American golden-brown-hued skin tone. And the point I'm making here is obvious. The skin tone of the native langi is very close to that of the children of the forest. And the very unique large golden eyes, which can see in the dark, again reminds us of the children of the forest. Now, the Lengi don't have slitted cat's eyes like the children, although the tiger symbolism of Lengi's valued tiger skins, which Illyrio trades in, by the way, could be a nod to cat's eyes and perhaps even skin changing. And of course, we've also talked about the idea that when uh, the Bloodstone Emperor, quote, married a tiger woman, that that could have been a god empress of Leng, who could have been known as a tiger woman because tigers seem to be sacred on Leng. But that's something we'll talk about in the second half of this episode. Now, however, large eyes are generally found on creatures which are nocturnal or sometimes cave-dwelling. And like the old ones in their underground cities, the children of the forest that we see are living underground in Blood Raven's cavern. In A Game of Thrones, Maester Lewin tells us that they've always done so. They were people dark and beautiful, small of stature, no taller than children even when grown to manhood. They lived in the depths of the wood, in caves and crannogs, and secret tree towns. Slight as they were, the children were quick and graceful. Note the physical descriptions here. Dark and beautiful. Slight. Quick and graceful. Compare that to the Lengi, who are described as slender, lithe, and lovely. 
and again with matching skin tones and eye color. If the Lange were not so tall, most everyone who read The World of Ice and Fire would immediately suspect them of having children of the forest blood, I think. So here is, here is what I think. I think the old ones of A Song of Ice and Fire are some kind of cousin to the children of the forest, the tall elves to the children's short elves. I think the native Lange interbred with these tall, elf-like old ones, just as there are hints of people breeding with magical beings all over the story. I think the unusual traits that we see in the native Lange are evidence of their old one's ancestry and clue us in to what the old ones might have looked like. This would be comparable to Jojen having moss green eyes like a child of the forest green seer. The Kranog men have a trace of children of the forest blood, and so they are a bit shorter than average men and occasionally turn up with green eyes and green gifts like Jojen's green sight. The large golden eyes, which are ideal for seeing in the dark that the Lange possess, really do make sense as a trait originally found in these subterranean-dwelling old ones. Likewise, we can assume that the extreme height is an old one's trait. If the old ones were short like the children, then the Lange would have become shorter by interbreeding with them, as the Cranogmen did. Instead, the native Lange are said to be the tallest people in the world, rivaling the tall men of Sarnor and the long-vanished maze-makers of Lorath, who left behind only their mazes and their very large bones. From this, I can only conclude that if the Lange interbred with the old ones, the height of the native Lange can probably be traced to the old ones, just as the golden eyes probably can be. If the old ones are some kind of elf, that would make sense. Fantasy elves, like those in The Lord of the Rings, are frequently tall, after all. They would be some sort of taller cousin to the children in this case. Now, we'll come back to the height issue in a moment, but there was an exciting clue about the children of the forest and caves delivered to us in the Arian chapter of The Winds of Winter that George has released early on. There's a passage where Arian is in the rainwood in the Stormlands, a place that used to be populated with the children of the forest, and she's underground in a cave and sees something rather remarkable. All at once, she found herself in another cavern, five times as big as the last one, surrounded by a forest of stone columns. Damon San moved to her side and raised his torch. Look at how that stone's been shaped. Those columns in the wall there. See them. Faces, said Ariane, so many sad eyes staring. This place belonged to the children of the forest. A thousand years ago. Silas, uh, before I go in and give my thoughts on this, what what is your thoughts on you've you've seen that bit before, right? The that was just read, yeah, yeah. So what what's your thought? What what the hell do you think that is? Uh, I mean it, it's ancient for sure, and uh, it's it's fantastic to uh, that he's weaving that in there. Uh, it's it's hard for me though to decide what it's going to do. It's also interesting in that same chapter, if I remember correctly, in that same sample chapter, there's a, a little tidbit about, um, I think, the Isle of Hoff or the Hoff of Man or something like that. Some island off the coast has, like, all the young women or the novices are, like, stolen by raiders from the sea. So that's also very Lovecraftian as well. So uh, there's something going on in this area they're exploring right there. It's obviously an ancient hotbed of Children of the Forest. Lovecraftian activity. Totally. Quinn, you have you have thoughts on this freaky um, underground face shit? Yeah, about those is it makes me wonder if uh if the children can carve faces in anything and like 
produce like this magical effect. If this is like some kind of spell that can just like be put, I can like carve this into like the side of a building. I don't know anything, but like they chose weirwood specifically because there was something specific about those trees that was like especially powerful or potent. And then we're just seeing like a maybe even more primitive form of the same magic. And they were like using these columns or maybe like I've, I've actually heard some people suggest that these at one point point were trees, but then something went down and they got turned in stone, maybe like over time. I don't know how possible that is, but yeah. That doesn't seem likely to me, I have to say, yeah. because they're so far underground. This isn't like Casterly yeah. Rock, the stone garden, which is like a grotto that's like getting some sunlight. Like they're way underground at this point. And essentially, these are stalactites and stalagmites that have joined together, which of course happens in caves, and they end up yeah. looking like pillars. And it also says, um, although this is a transcription of George reading, um, so we can't trust the words um, a thousand percent on the accuracy of this. But it says um, faces not only on the columns, but also on the wall. Mm-hmm. And the wall is definitely not a petrified tree. So to me, it's yeah. pretty clear they're carving faces in stone here. So the only question is, could they use them magically? Or is this some sort of like done in imitation of the heart trees kind of thing? I think that it's probably just, it, I think that it probably does have some kind of magical thing to it. In my opinion, I, I, I have been thrown around the idea for years now that like all the caves are like connected under Westeros. That's what I think. I think that the children, if they wanted to, could navigate from that cave beyond the wall, maybe to this place. That's just my personal, I, I think that's probably something like that. Because like there's all this talk when they're in those when in those brand chapters, she's all like, "Oh, these caves, no one knows how far they lead. Some say they go on forever." Like I feel like that's probably true. That they could it's maybe like there maybe they maybe there's like remnants of an entire underground society that the children of the forest had. We don't know. They say they claim to have been on Westeros for a million years, according to Leaf. So that's a lot of time. Some so, kind of creepy. Sorry, go ahead, Luz. No, go ahead. I was just going to say I really like that, um, and that's probably what I'm drawing. That's what I'm saying. Like, cities, <laughs> we, we're going to yeah. talk about, like, hidden cities underground. Like, the children of the forest, are they're, they're cave people with, I mean, how do we know? We don't know what they've got underground. <laughs> and there could be tons of structures idol. under there. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the things that a lot of people are looking forward to, like, how far do these underground caves go? Can you go under the wall and get all the way back to Winterfell Crypts? You know, can Bran get on the river, that dark river underground and, and get all the way back to Winterfell. So it's possible. I mean, it's definitely like the kind of thing you'd find in a fantasy novel. So <laughs> we shall see. And of course, Ravenous Reader, who I don't think is here today for whatever reason, I know she would want me to read this quote from The World of Ice and Fire. Their music and song was said to be as beautiful as they were, but what they sang of is not remembered, save in small fragments handed down from ancient days. Maester Childer's Winter's Kings, or the legends and lineages of the Starks of Winterfell, contains a part of a ballad alleged to tell the time Brandon the Builder sought the aid of the children while raising the wall. He was taken to a secret place to meet with them, but he could not at first understand their speech, which was described as sounding like the song of stones in a brook, or the wind through leaves, or rain upon the water. That's an interesting phrase, the song of stones in a brook. Now, he could be just trying to evoke that trinkling, babbling brook sound, and that could just be a phrase. But when you, when you think of uh, those who sing the songs of earth... Oh, there's Ravenous Reader. Okay. So those who sing the songs of earth, their voice sounds like the song of stone. So maybe, you know, stones are part of earth. So if they can 
see through trees, why not through stone, right? I mean, it's not exactly far-fetched. Well, I, 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 I like that idea because I, I always think that the werewoods are, it, they are literally Westeros. They're like everything that's in, the, in Westeros, right? So when, when Veramir Sixkin dies, right, he, he goes into the werewood for a little bit and he becomes a part of not just the werewood net, but everything. Right. He, he, he's like the eagle and he's like the tree and he's like he's like everything that's in Westeros. So why not? If it's all connected, why couldn't they use stone or anything else? They can they can see through animals. They can see through the eyes of animals. Literally. Why not through stone? If, I mean, unless it has to be living. I don't know. But yeah. <laughs> Eliana says, I'm pretty sure those are just the lyrics to Colors of the Wind. But I know every rock and tree and creature has a life and a spirit has a name. I'm sorry. I don't. I don't know the tune well enough to sing. I know that. every rock and tree and creature has a life, has a spirit, has a name. Thank you, <laughs> Sam Yeah. Sam Rickson, I think you've just coaxed a super chat out of Ian Milne. <laughs> nice one. All right. So we've talked about the caves there. And like I said, I don't think they could be trees. I think those are stones. So it would seem that what we have here is just what it looks like. Evidence of children of the forest carving heart tree faces into stone. Is it possible that, ancient alien's voice, the carvers of these faces were able to look through their stone eyes as they would the face of a heart tree and also spaceships? Um, That would be something of a game changer, right? Um, We can't make this assumption without more evidence, but... You know, this is interesting. I mean, setting aside the issue of the faces, we've never really seen any evidence of the children working in stone at all, apart from perhaps flint napping some dragonglass knives for the Black Brothers. So this really has the potential to change the way we view the children. We're told that they did not build castles and cities, as man does, only those secret tree towns, which I presume look like Ewok villages. But is it possible... Is it possible that they were doing more underground than simply living in caves? Were they shaping the stone like the old ones in their underground cities? The only other suggestion of the children doing anything with stone comes from Cat's memory of the legend of Storm's End from A Clash of Kings. A seventh castle he raised, most massive of all. Some said the children of the forest helped him build it, shaping the stones with magic. Others claim that a small boy told him what he must do. A boy who would grow to be Bran the Builder. Mm. What are you laughing at? Nothing. <laughs> 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 it's just like time travel and Bran, though. I'm just saying. But go. So it's always been hard to know what to make of the notion of the children shaping stones with magic, since that doesn't sound like anything that we associate with the children. I've suggested before that this could be a garbled account of dragon lords using their fused stone technology at Storm's End or perhaps elsewhere. Although if there is fused stone at Storm's End, then it would have to be hidden beneath the curtain wall because we don't see it. And that really doesn't make sense. If you could make fused stone, you'd probably just make the whole castle from it, as opposed to only the base or the foundation. Still, it is possible that the outer masonry we see was added later, so we can't rule it out. And if you think about the high tower in Old Town, there's a few stone fortress at the base that they then built on top of. So maybe it's kind of like that. But all we know is that the only people said to have been able to shape stone with magic are dragon lords creating fused stone with dragon fire and sorcery. So the fact that we can't come to a satisfactory explanation for this line about the children shaping stone with magic is what makes it tantalizing. 
There's a mystery here that we don't understand yet, it seems. It's possible that the answer has something to do with those stone faces on the pillars in that cave in the rainwood. It seems likely that we don't know everything there is to know about the children yet, and I think George has intentionally kept their secrets for the last leg of the story. We already expect to learn a lot more about them from Bran's weird visions in The Winds of Winter, and the fact that he has a character whose plotline doesn't really involve Greenseer-related stuff, Ariane, wandering into an old Children of the Forest cave, really shows that this is something that's coming to the fore in the final books. It won't just be in Bran's plotline. It could pop up anywhere. Still, with all that said, Lang is a long way from Westeros. However, if you've read The World of Ice and Fire, you probably remember the tale of the Ifakevron, a short race of woods people that used to live in Essos, north of the Dothraki Sea and south of Ib, which is also quite a long way from Westeros. Here are two quotes about them. In the southeast, the proud city-states of the Cathy arose. In the forest to the north, along the shores of the Shivering Sea, were the domains of the Woodswalkers, a diminutive folk whom many maesters believed to have been kin to the children of the forest. And then this one, courtesy of the sea snake Corlys Valerion. The fabled sea snake Corlys Valerion, lord of the tides, was the first Westerosi to visit these woods. After his return from the Thousand Islands, he wrote of carved trees, hunted grottoes, and strange silences. A later traveler, the merchant adventurer Brian of Old Town, captain of the Cog, Spear Shaker, provided an account of his own journey across the Shivering Sea. He reported that the Dothraki name for the lost people meant those who walk in the woods. None of the Ibanese that Brian of Old Town met could say they had ever seen a woodswalker, but claimed that the little people blessed a household that left offerings of leaf and stone and water overnight. These woodswalkers sound exactly like children of the forest, do they not? They do. Um, or at least something very similar. And woodswalker is a phrase that reminds us a lot of white walkers of the woods, another name for the others who seem to have been created in part through green seer magic, of course. Setting the potential clue about the others aside, it would seem that the story of the Ifakevron is included in A Song of Ice and Fire primarily to show us that children of the forest, or creatures of their sort, once lived all throughout the world, and not only in Westeros. There is one other potential race of beings that sound like they could also be related to the children. Northwest of Sithorios in the Summer Sea lies the mysterious island of Noth, known to the ancients as the Isle of Butterflies. The people native to the island are a beautiful and gentle race, with round flat faces, dusky skin, and large soft amber eyes, oft flecked with gold. The peaceful people, the Nathi, are called by seafarers, for they will not fight even in defense of their homes and persons. The Nathi do not kill, not even beasts of the field and wood, they eat fruit, not flesh, and make music, not war. The god of Nath is called the Lord of Harmony, oft shown as a laughing giant, bearded and naked, always attended by swarms of slender maidens with butterfly wings. A hundred varieties of butterflies flitter about the island. The Nathi revere them as messengers of the Lord, charged with the protection of his people. 
Mayhaps there is some truth to these legends, for whilst the docile nature of the Nathi seemed to make their island ripe for conquest, strangers from beyond the sea do not live long upon the Isle of Butterflies. You know, one question I have about Lang is, um, I wonder if the Empress is going to kill all of the non-natives at some point in the, in the main story. You know, that would be that, so interesting. Right? And it would, like, key some sort of return of the old ones of, of some level. You know, it just makes you wonder that he included that. That You know, at least twice in the past, they put all the uh, Four non-natives. Times. Three times? Yeah. Four. Four. Wow. Really murderous. <laughs> that would be interesting because the way we would hear about that, we would hear it like through some other character. It would be like just some rumor. Oh, I hear she put all these people to death. And it would be like, no, she didn't. It yeah. just be the rumor. Well, um, so right at the end of A Dance with Dragons, we hear a rumor about the Grey Plague running around E.T. So that mm. actually would be a good reason to close the island to foreigners. So, yeah. I like it, Silas. All right. So, again, we see the large golden eyes. See, I've got thematically appropriate golden eyes yes uh large golden eyes and approximate skin tone which i do not have i am very pasty white but the uh the uh people of the nathi have dusky skin and that is again in that golden brown medium brown sort of range and so we've got golden eyes we've got dark skin and we've got diminutive stature so all these are potential matches for children of the forest one can't help but notice the Taoist philosophy of the Lord of Harmony, which is very consistent with the beliefs of the children of the forest. And like the children, the Nathi live in nature and seem to be largely peaceful. They worship, and Quinn, I don't, don't give me any of your evil children of the forest tinfoil. The children of the forest are happy little elves. They live in concert with nature. They only care about the balance of nature. And when they kill people, it's only because those people are bad and they're hurting nature and they're hurting the trees. I mean, I think case, that's true mostly, but yeah. No, I'm, I'm teasing with you. I've, I've, <laughs> I mean, we've talked about it before. The, the nature lore is always double-edged. Sir Nunos yeah. can be, you know, he can be, um, he can be a killer. And he's somebody to fear if you go into the forest. So that's kind of the idea of the elves. Like, you go into the forest and start cutting down the heart trees and, you know, you might get your throat cut. Uh, but they're still, but they're still nice. In any case, <laughs> the Nathi are even more peaceful, you'd say, than the children. They seem to be total pacifists. The Nathi worship a very Garth-like figure, the Lord of Harmony, and it must be said, uh, he's, I mean, he's very Garth-like. He's bearded and laughing and naked, and he's surrounded by swarms of maidens. That is very, very Garth-like. It's very jolly green giant. It's very uh, the ghost of Christmas present from uh, Christmas Carol. Yeah. yeah. You know, that's the kind totally. of vibe. So, happy Robert. Happy young Robert Baratheon. So, Nath is quite far away from, well, everything, really. And again, we find ourselves on an island, as we were with Leng. The children of the forest tell Bran that they've sung their songs a thousand, thousand years, which would mean one million years. And although we have no way to know the truth of that, it seems logical to view Leng, the forest of the Ephekevron, and Nath, as the last little pockets and remnants of the elves, quote-unquote, that remain outside of Westeros, if, in fact, these other races are related to the children of the forest at all, which is, of course, a big if. A complementary idea to that of the children and related elf creatures once having lived outside of Westeros is the fact that giants also seem to have existed outside of Westeros, namely the Jogwin, the so-called stone giants. 
The quest to puzzle out the nature of the Old Ones has one other thread to follow besides the elf-related ideas. There are two other cultures which we might be able to draw a tentative link to, primarily based on height, and those would be the Sarnori and the ancient Lorathi. So the Sarnori, the Tege's Fen in their language, which means the tall men, are relevant because the very approximate physical descriptions mostly matches the Langi. They're exceptionally tall. They're, in fact, compared to one another, being the tallest people in the world. The Sarnori have a similar medium-dark golden skin tone, um, similar to the Dothraki, whom they're almost certainly related to. Uh, the difference is in the eye color. The Sarnori typically had black eyes, again, like the Dothraki, instead of the golden eyes of the Langi. As I mentioned earlier, both Lang and Sarnor are words taken from Lovecraft, so it's very plausible that Martin is imagining the Song of Ice and Fire versions of these places as, as being linked as well. The ancestors of the Sarnori seem to have come over the Bones Mountains from eastern Essos, the former lands of the Great Empire of the Dawn, and they have their own Zora High-like legend of a hero named Huzor Amai. That could be relevant, because... According to Yeetish history, Lang was a part of the Great Empire of the Dawn. And that means there actually could be a plausible genetic link between the Sarnori and the Langi, albeit a very, very ancient one. Lorath is perhaps the more intriguing match. Here I'm speaking of the ancient people who first settled there, who do not appear to be related to or connected to the later inhabitants of the city known as the Lorathi. Before the modern-day city was built, there was an interesting religious cult who lived here, Followers of the blind god Boash, who were ascetics who sought after enlightenment and nirvana. But before them, an albino, a mosquito. Okay. Before them, there was a people known to us only as the maze makers. Sprawling constructs of bewildering complexity, made from blocks of hewn stone, the maze makers' constructions are scattered across the aisles and one badly overgrown and sunk deep into the earth has been found on Essos proper, on the peninsula south of Lorath. Lorison, the second greatest of the Lorath Isles, is home to a vast maze that fills more than three-quarters of the surface area of the island and includes four levels beneath the ground, with some passages descending five hundred feet. Scholars still debate the purpose of these mazes. Were they fortifications? temples, towns, or did they serve some other stranger purpose? The maze-makers left no written records, so we shall never know. Their bones tell us that they were massively built and larger than men, though not so large as giants. Some have suggested that mayhaps the maze-makers were born of interbreeding between human men and giant women. We do not know why they disappeared, though Larathi legend suggests they were destroyed by an enemy from the sea, Merlings in some versions of the tale, Selkies and Warismen in others. There you go, the Maze Makers. So this is again one of the most awesome corners of the fandom as far as, not fandom, the lore that the fandom likes to look at. The Maze Makers, like they're very hard to connect to anything. Silas, do you have any ideas about the Maze Makers? I do. Um... And it, it's an old idea that I found on um, Westeros.org that has uh, the Migo, who are like this Lovecraftian beings from outer space who come and they're known for building things. Uh, it's just, it, it, you know, it's just an idea. I don't know if that's if uh, George would go that deep into Lovecraftian lore to 
weave in the Migo, who are these like, you know, outer space beings who came to Earth and building big cities and stuff. We're just known for building stuff, you know, and they're kind of like slug-like beings or something. I don't know. There's some pretty cool drawings of them online. But I, I also know that like, I think Boash is probably Azathoth, you know, uh, the blind god uh at the center of the universe right if they're if if they're worshiping a blind god it's a pretty strong call out to azathoth so that's always my theory on that so what's what's the deal with azathoth well he's like he is the universe let's say it more it's like um he's like a cosmic nuclear being that dreamed up the universe because he's sleeping uh, at the center of the universe, and he's held asleep by the outer gods who sit around him in a circle and sing sing to him. Because if he ever wakes up, he'll stop dreaming, and the universe will blink out of existence. So uh, he's the most awesome, powerful, but he's he has no brain. It's just sort of a a a, a, a being that exists that makes us all exist and yet has no concept that it even exists. So it's kind of like the idea being it's like a really scary tentative uh, universe that we live in that may just blink out of existence one day. That sounds uh, suitably unnerving. I think that's true. (laughs) That's cosmic horror for you, but yeah, exactly. The key part of this that I want to focus in on, we just read this long description of Lorath, is that it says... Lorraeus and the second largest of the Lorath Isles is home to a vast maze that fills more than three quarters of the surface area of the island and includes four levels beneath the ground, with some passages descending 500 feet. So that's pretty far underground. I don't know if you've ever tried to dig 500 feet deep out of stone, but it's a lot of work. You have to be dedicated to make that happen. So... (laughs) um, The underground portions of these stone mazes, which seem to be the larger portion of the complex as a whole, really do match the descriptions that were given of the underground cities in the jungles of Leng. That doesn't mean they're connected, of course, but when taken together with the very large skeletons, which seem to be somewhere between the height of giants, which is 12 to 14 feet, and men, which is about 6 feet, it seems that we might be in that 8 feet or so region again, like the Lengi and the Sarnori. The main difference between the mazes of Lorath and the subterranean cities of Lang is the insanity. There are no reports of bad things happening to people who visit the mazes of Lorath, certainly not like at Lang. We don't know why that is. Perhaps the old ones abandoned the Lorathi site after their wars with the Merlings and Selkies, or perhaps they remain on Lang to give the god empress bad advice on issues of tourism and immigration. Or perhaps one place is cursed and the other not. Or perhaps there's some other reason. Overall, these links are tentative, and they're meant to be. George is trying to create the feel of older cycles of existence lying beneath the layers of more modern history, so all we can ever get are glimpses of the deep ones or the old ones or the maze makers. They're supposed to tantalize us and leave us wondering what came before. However, when Martin references things... Sorry. However, when Martin references things from other famous works of literature like the old ones... He's basically inviting us to dig into the source material to get a better sense of the context that he's drawing from. In this case, I read a long and twisting Lovecraft story called The Doom That Came to Sarnath, and I found some juicy nuggets which will inform our quest for the truth that lies beneath the jungles of Lang. I also told you that Lovecraft wasn't the only one to write about the old ones, so 
Let's take a look at those things and see what was on Martin's mind when he created these mysteries. Return of the Men with Antler Hats. This section is brought to you by our dragon patrons. Bronze stereos of the lily white scales and bronze horns, wing bones, and spinal crest. A wise old dragon who riddles with sphinxes. It is said that bronze stereos once forged a life-size Valerian steel cyvass set in a single night. And by Vesperis the Nightbringer, the Shadowfire Dragon, whose scales are dark as smoke, whose horns, wing bones, and spinal crest are the color of molten silver, and whose eyes are two black moons. Here's where Martin's creative blending of multiple outside influences comes in. The Old Ones are a race of Lovecraftian beings, it's true enough. But we've also talked quite a lot about the horned god archetype of European folklore, which can manifest as Sir Nunos, or Hearn the Hunter, or the Green Man, or a host of other related horned deities, and of the absolutely massive influence this folklore has on A Song of Ice and Fire. Curiously, one of the classic names for the horned god is... The Great Old One. Dun-dun-dun. So this is kind of important, as we know. The horned god ideas feature prominently in the legends and the cultures of Westeros, from Garth the Green, to the sacred order of green men on the Isle of Faces, to the antler hats of House Durandon and then Baratheon, to the horned lord constellation, and the legendary wildling king beyond the wall of the same name. If the Old Ones of Lang are playing into this stagman horned lord idea, they might be more relevant to the story than first appeared. The idea of Sir Nunos as an old one is also a big boost for the theory that the old ones of Lang are perhaps some sort of elf creature, potentially related to the children of the forest because Sir Nunos is very elf-like. And more specifically, he's a stag man, and the children have brown skin which is dappled with white spots like a deer. You can kind of see how this could all come together, the old ones could be the long-lost race of stagmen. Specifically, I'm thinking about Garth the Green and the sacred order of green men who were mysteriously formed after the pact between children and first men that was signed on the Isle of Faces. We've been wondering what those green men are, assuming that they're not just children of the forest. My best two ideas were that they were either green men as in green zombies like cold hands, or that they were indeed some kind of elf-like stagman humanoid. Well, it could certainly be both. Zombie stagmen, if you will. But let's think about the stagman tall elf option on its own. Could the old ones from Lang be our stagmen who are created in the image of the great old one, the horned god himself? Did they come all the way to Westeros to become the green men who live on the Isle of Faces? Or perhaps the old ones on Lang and the green men are simply related beings? So as Bran tells us, all the tales agreed that the green men had strange magic powers. Bran learned from Old Nan that the green men ride on elks, and that sometimes they have antlers too. We knew that already, and we knew that this image of the stag man is an old and powerful one, which left its imprint all over Westeros. Garth the Green is cast in the role of a stag man and a fertility god, and he was said to be the first man in Westeros. The Durandin tradition of antlered men dates back to the ancient times in all likelihood, while even the wildlings who were cut off from Westeros by the Wall thousands of years ago know of the tradition of the green men. Grig the goat, who is implied as a horned fellow, you'll notice because he's Grig the goat, 
tells John that he dreams of visiting the Green Men on the Isle of Faces, and they even refer to the constellation Westeros calls the Stallion as the Horned Lord. And that's, of course, named after an ancient king beyond the wall who took the name the Horned Lord. So, this is an old tradition, perhaps one of the oldest set of cultural and religious beliefs in all of Westeros. So was it based in fact? Did these stag men ever actually exist? Are the green men who guard the weirwoods on the Isle of Faces really the old ones from Lang? Well, what if I told you that in Lovecraft's version of Lang, the native race of humanoids is a type of horned and hooved almost human? That's right. Although the old ones themselves are either sort of formless deities or sometimes they're weird five-tentacled and five-winged blob things, the abandoned cities on the Plateau of Lang are inhabited now by some horny goat people, as we see in Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. They actually sail pitch-black merchant ships around the dream world, and they can even fly them to the moon. It's true, it's weird, but it's true. In Dream Quest, they abduct the main character on one of these ships, and they take him to the dark side of the moon, but fortunately, he's rescued by cats, whom he had previously befriended. Don't ask about the cats. It's a weird story. The point <laughs> is that horny humanoids on Lang is not a new idea. That's, of course, the, uh, the cats of Ulthar. And in this um, dream world, the cats can leap from, leap from the rooftops straight to the moon. And so they're, they're very powerful and magical. But again, it's very, off, off, uh, very much off the topic. So... Silas, I'm not going to ask for your opinion on that, uh, but I will ask for your opinion in just a second. So the point is that horny humanoids on Lang is not a new idea. I mean, I did come up with it on my own through the process outlined up to this point. But then someone told me that, yeah, actually, Lovecraft already put horned folk on Lang. It was definitely a mind-blowing moment for me. Yeah. So here is a good little extended bit from Dream Quest of unknown Kadath, and the scene starts with the main character, Randolph Carter, flying on the back of a wyvern-like creature called a Shantak. The Shantak now flew lower, revealing beneath the canopy of cloud a gray barren plain, whereon at great distances shone little feeble fires. As they descended, there appeared at intervals lone huts of granite and bleak stone villages whose tiny windows glowed with pallid light. And there came from those huts and villages a shrill droning of pipes and a nauseous rattle of crotala, which proved at once that Inquinox people are right in their geographic rumors. For travelers have heard such sounds before and know that they float only from the cold desert plateau which healthy folk never visit, that haunted place of evil and mystery which is Leng. Around the feeble fires, dark forms were dancing, and Carter was curious as to what manner of beings they might be, for no healthy folk have ever been to Lang, and the place is known only by its fires and stone huts as seen from afar. Very slowly and awkwardly did those forms leap, and with an insane twisting and bending not good to behold, so that Carter did not wonder at the monstrous evil imputed to them by vague legend, or the fear in which all dreamland holds their abhorrent frozen plateau. As the Shantak flew lower, the repulsiveness of the dancers became tinged with a certain hellish familiarity, and the prisoner kept straining his eyes and racking his memory for clues to where he had seen such creatures before. 
They leaped as though they had hooves instead of feet, and seemed to wear a sort of wig or headpiece with small horns. Of other clothing they had none, but most of them were quite furry. Behind they had dwarvish tails, and when they glanced upward he saw the excessive width of their mouths. Then he knew what they were, and that they did not wear any wigs or headpieces after all, for the cryptic folk of Lang were of one race with the uncomfortable merchants of the black galleys that traded rubies at Dilath Lean, those not-quite-human merchants who are the slaves of the monstrous moon things. They were indeed the same dark folk who had shanghaied Carter on their noisome galley so long ago and whose kith he had seen driven in herds about the unclean wharves of that accursed lunar city, with the leaner ones toiling and the fatter ones taken away in crates for other needs of their polypus and amorphous masters. Now he saw where such ambiguous creatures came from, and shuddered at the thought that Lang must be known to these formless abominations from the moon. So as you can see, um, Lovecraft's prose is uh, not quite as smooth as George Martin's prose, as you might say. No. But um, I'm sharing my screen here real quick. I'm going to show you a couple of drawings that people have done of these hooved, horny things. This is a particularly ugly rendition with not quite enough fur. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, that is a man of Ling. And here's another one, which I prefer a little bit. It's looking... Like an evil satyr, essentially. That's kind of the vibe that you get from this description. So uh, it was actually Jojo Lady Dane who told me about the horned beings on Lang. So I had completely forgot who it was, and Jojo Lady Dane is saying that was me. So thank you, Jojo Lady Dane, who's, of course, a patron and a moderator and a myth-head and a friend. So I'm not saying this is exactly what Martin pictured the sacred order of green men looking like. But I can tell you from some of the moon lore in this book and other clues that Martin has definitely read this book. And this is the one that contains the idea of horned creatures doing occult things around campfires in a forbidden land called Leng. They aren't the old ones themselves, as I said, but Martin likes to switch things around when he borrows from stuff anyway. If my hypothesis that a race of horned, or antlered humanoids, known as the Green Men in Westeros, are related to, or the same as, the mysterious Old Ones on the Isle of Lang in the Jade Sea is correct. Then it would simply mean that Martin switched things around a bit, and made his Old Ones the horned creatures themselves, instead of the vanished people who made the cities. Given that Sir Nunos, the OG stagman nature god whom Martin seems to adore, just so happens to be known as the Great Old One, this change is actually a stroke of genius. It seems that he noticed the weird intersection of horned people and the phrase the Old Ones that exists between the horny goat people living in the cities of the Old Ones on Lovecraft's Lang and the horny Sir Nunos, who is called the Great Old One. And he thought he'd have himself a lark. And thus we get Martin's old ones of Leng, who are really the same as the green men from the Isle of Faces. They're tall and dark and presumably terrifyingly beautiful, and they wear antler hats and do moon magic. The fact that Lovecraft's horned creatures, referred to as the men of Leng, can sail to the moon on a ship in the dream world works very well with some of the mythical astronomy ideas about what Martin is doing with the green men and the moon. Namely, I believe that the legend of mass sacrifice on the Isle of Faces to call down the hammer of the waters is actually a telling 
of Zora High performing blood magic with a child of the forest Nissa Nissa that cracked the moon. The simple idea of the horned folk from Lovecraft Lang being able to sail ships in the dreamscape also seems very compatible with the basic notion of the green men as green seers who sail the astral plane on their weirwood boats, if you will. When you read about those underground ruins in the jungles of Martin's Lang that led down to God knows where, that's very similar to the main city of Lovecraft's plateau of Lang. 